from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. I'm Ty Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. Is the bull market over for corn? Our analysts weigh in. The White House says it's combating anti-competition in agriculture. Details of the executive order that could have a sweeping impact on farmers and ranchers. A double dose of bad news for ethanol producers. It really was unexpected. Both decisions were unexpected. So what's next? Well, that's our Farm Journal report. Two years after a tornado tore through this Kansas dairy farm. I wasn't ready to quit. (laughs) One family is proving they are still stronger than the storm. And in John's world. What's an egg worth? Turns out way more than you think. Now for the news, a big announcement from USDA that will impact farmers and ranchers. Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack appearing with Democratic Congresswoman Cindy Axney of Iowa in Council Bluffs. The two holding an event at Rustic Cuts Butcher Shop on Friday, just across the state line from Omaha, Nebraska, where the announcement was originally scheduled to take place. Vilsack announcing $500 million in new funds for small and medium-sized processing operations. It's thought the money would be made available in the form of grants starting October 1st. That announcement comes on the heels of President Biden signing an executive order. The order directs USDA to consider issuing new rules under the Packers and Stockyards Act. The idea here to make it easier for farmers to bring exploitation claims against chicken processors and provide protections for farmers who speak out. It also directs USDA to issue new rules defining when meat can bear the product of USA labels. USDA would also need to develop a plan to increase opportunities for farmers to access markets and receive a return. This includes supporting alternative food distribution systems such as farmers markets. Another part of that executive order addresses the issue of tractor owners being able to repair their own machinery or use independent repair shops. It's often called right to repair. The White House press secretary commenting on it earlier this week. The U.S. Department of Agriculture announced it will engage in a series of rulemakings to increase competition in agricultural industries to boost farmers and ranchers' earnings, fight back against abuses of power by giant agribusiness corporations, and give farmers the right to repair their own equipment. Well, Deere and Company stock reacting to the order, saying 98% of the repairs customers want to do on John Deere products today, they can do. It said it does not support the right to modify embedded software due to risks associated with the safe operation of the equipment, emissions compliance, as well as engine performance. Well, the new Purdue University CME Group Ag Economy Barometer shows farmer sentiments are dropping. For the second month in a row, the Ag Economy Barometer just took a nosedive, this time to a reading of 137. That's actually 21 points below a month ago. It's the weakest ag producer sentiment reading since July of last year. The decline in the barometer was driven mostly by a decline in the index of current conditions, although the index of future expectations also declined. The sharpest decline, however, really was in that current condition index, which fell to 149 from 178 a month earlier. The Farm Financial Performance Index declined sharply to a reading of 96 versus 126 last month and 138 two months ago as farmers became more concerned about the ability of their farms to have good financial performance compared to a year earlier. Surveyors say rising input costs are a big concern right now for farmers. Well, if you're in the market for a new truck, 
you may be waiting a while longer. That's as major auto and truck manufacturers announce extended shutdowns, and it's the chip shortage still to blame. Just this week, Ford Motor Company and GM announcing layoffs would continue. It's due to trouble sourcing the semiconductor chips needed to produce new trucks and cars. Ford says the F-150 production plant in Kansas City is shutting down for two weeks in July. Plants in Michigan, Kentucky, Illinois, Canada, and Mexico are also seeing extended closures. According to Farm Journal research, more than a third of farmers plan to purchase a new pickup this year. Well, there's a pinch at ports, a backlog at one of China's biggest ports. It may be finally over. Shipping giant Merck saying the backlog of vessels waiting to reach berths at one of the largest ports there is actually gone. Terminals reportedly returned to full operations last Thursday. That followed a COVID-19 outbreak among dock workers. But shippers really shouldn't expect supply chains to immediately be repaired or recover. While officials believe they can eliminate piles of stacked containers within a couple of weeks, the backlog of shipments piled up in factories and warehouses elsewhere in the region, well, that will take at least a month to clear up. Well, propane prices are on the rise. The Wall Street Journal reporting futures prices right now are roughly twice their levels during the past two summers. The Energy Information Administration says American households can expect to spend an average of 14% more on propane this winter than they did last year. And the price could go up even higher if the weather is colder than forecasted. And while demand for many fuels actually declined last year, Outbound cargoes of U.S. propane actually rose 13 percent, and now there are supply concerns that are rising. Last week, the Energy Information Administration reported propane stocks were less than analysts had expected. An area that stretches from Ohio to Oklahoma and up to North Dakota is particularly low on supply. That region burns a lot of propane in the fall when farmers use it to dry crops. Well, the markets tanked Tuesday on weather as rains swept across the Corn Belt. So it's more in store for next week. Your forecast, that's next. Join Andrew McRae for Farming the Countryside, a farmer-focused podcast all about production agriculture. Brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven, the nitrogen-producing microbes that stay put, whether or not. Visit pivotbio.com. Well, a lot of focus on the weather right now. Meteorologist Mike Hoffman joins us. Mike, rain's hitting much of the Corn Belt this week. Is more on the way? Good morning to you, Tyne. As a matter of fact, yes, uh, there's going to be a slow-moving system over the middle of the country producing times of showers and thunderstorms probably for several days as we head through the first half of the week anyway. You can see the root zone has actually dried off across Michigan. Last week it was almost all blue. Now it's kind of back to uh, pretty close to normal. Lots of wet conditions though from the southern Missouri Valley all the way to the Gulf Coast and that's probably going to uh, have a much uh, much more blue next week because the newest one will come out on Tuesday of this week and you can see the wet areas back into New Mexico and parts of Arizona but it's gotten drier over the northern plains over the last week and it just remains extremely dry over the rest of the west. Drought monitor long-term drought uh, still showing pockets of extreme to exceptional drought over the northern plains from the four corner region westward extremely dry conditions continue. But east of there, there's been some places that have actually been getting wetter and we're seeing these drought areas or dry areas actually diminishing. So let's take a look at the jet stream this week. Yeah, there's that cutoff low. Just gonna be sitting there 
uh, for several days. Big ridge out west keeping the heat there. Ridge in the southeast keeping it dry. But there's going to be showers and thunderstorms pretty close to that area of low pressure. Still kind of a trough by the time we get to Wednesday. And then that kind of moves toward the northeast. But you'll notice we're probably going to see little ripples through this jet stream as we head through the rest of next week and into the following weekend. So there will be little fronts coming through from time to time. So let's check things out on Monday. Storm system sitting uh, right over uh, Iowa, Missouri area. Warm front to the east. There will be some areas of showers and storms scattered through the southeast and then also through the uh, southwestern part of the country. Weak system with some showers north of the border there in the west. Uh, most of this week's going to be dry in the west. There will be some hit and miss activity in the southwest at times. But you can see the remnant area of low pressure over the middle of the country. Otherwise, just scattered showers and storms right on up and down the Mississippi Valley into the northeast. And on Friday, we're going to see that uh, kind of continuing as the storm system finally moves away. Another one kind of coming in. None of this is real chilly air at this point, but it's going to produce some areas of showers and thunderstorms. Taking a look at the 30 day outlook for temperatures, I'm going above normal, mid-Atlantic, northeast, Great Lakes, right on up uh, along the Canadian border through the west, below normal central plains and southern plains, southern Mississippi Valley. Precipitation over the next 30 days, a huge area of above normal from the northeast to the Gulf Coast, back into the Four Corner region, then below normal, unfortunately, for the northern plains and much of the west. Time? Well, the focus right now in the markets, it's all about the weather. Tommy Grasafi and Brian Split join me to talk about it next. Got equipment to sell privately but tired of scams and hassles? Visit MachineRepeat.com and click Sell Mine. MachineRepeat.com, the simple and secure way to buy and sell equipment online. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Tommy Grasafi, Brian Split joining us. Well, coming off of that big USDA acreage report, boy, Brian, we came out of that 4th of July weekend seeing limit down moves for corn. Is it all about weather right now? Uh, I think weather is a big influence. Uh, I think we had the idea that acres weren't uh, quite what we thought they were, less than expected, but the change in the weather pattern and the increase in production estimates uh, seems to have made up for that based on the price action. But we also have a little bit of a macroeconomic influence. You look at what's going on globally, we're seeing expectations that uh, the UK is going to be ending their lockdown, yet we have Tokyo announcing that we're not going to have spectators at the Olympics due to COVID. Uh, and it does seem to be putting a little bit of a foothold in the macroeconomic sentiment, uh, putting some negative uh, trade influence with uh, what's going on in the energies and the equities right now. Tommy, I mean, when you look at the supply side of it, you know, really a, a heavy focus on, on some of those areas like North Dakota coming out of that acreage report. We know they've been dry. You're actually in North Dakota this week, boots on the ground tour, looking at crop conditions. What are you seeing? Well, the uh, the problem in the wheat is a, a big problem. And if anyone is in Chicago or New York or trading a hedge fund and they watch it rain in North Dakota and think it's going to save the wheat, it for the crop that's dead, it's dead. So you, you don't need to sell it, limit down like you did the other day unless you want to. But the, the problem in the wheat is wheat's problem. Now, don't get that confused with corn and beans and what they have going on. So uh, North Dakota put them down for potential to grow or planted 3 million acres of corn, over 7 million acres of beans planted in North Dakota. North Dakota's corn has a pretty good chance here of making a decent crop with a couple more spoon-fed rains. Soybeans a little too, uh, we're not quite there. We need some August weather 
to have a better idea. But uh, if you're watching the show this week and you're not selling corner beans and you live in a ice states and you're growing a big crop, I think you're making a mistake. If you're scared to sell, I think you need to protect. And you've had three chances of protecting and selling above $6 and maybe you weren't interested in doing that. But as it rains and the 4th of July is over and if some timely rains hit in July, we're, we're seeing selling pressure on these markets. Not to mention what Brian mentioned, what's going on with the outside markets. There's some things brewing here Sometimes you just got to admit that was our summer market and it's time to move on. Beans still have a story. Keep an eye on canola. There's some wild things that could possibly happen here into uh, wheat harvest and canola harvest here in the next month. Brian, I mean, if Tommy is telling us that the North Dakota corn crop, at least, is, is possibly there, does that change the scenario when it comes to prices? If we do see some of these dry areas that have had some rain this week, ultimately save that crop? Well, there's been a, a big argument over the last uh, several sessions of, you know, we've got the extra acres that we planted this year uh, were in the Dakotas. And so with that uh, region being the area of concern, can we possibly raise trend line yields? And not to mention trend line yield uh, that the USDA is currently using is three bushels per acre above our current record in real world application. Uh, so absolutely, you get an improvement in the North Dakota, North Dakota and South Dakota crop. Uh, it's going to help raise our overall estimates. I think right now uh, the trade is probably trading a number somewhere between 175 on the low end and 177 on the upper end. Um, but, you know, think about how blessed we are. We, we've just had a limit down move coming out of 4th of July. We had another 10 to 20 cents tacked on after that. And we're still sitting around five and a quarter December corn. Uh, we're still wildly profitable in areas that are going to have good yields. And we're going to have some areas that have record yields. So again, I agree with Tommy's sentiment. If you're not selling because of issues weather-wise going on elsewhere and not on your own farm, you really have to take a look at the type of profitability on a per acre basis you're looking at. Um, and, and I think you probably need to raise your on-farm estimates based on some of the rain that's come through. Uh, now, I understand if you're a producer that is not looking at, at, at a crop, uh, you still have to be mindful of these chart points. And I can tell you the critical support in this December corn uptrend is $5. Uh, so if you don't want to sell bushels, and I understand that, you might want to have some puts under the market just in case. Let's remember what happened when COVID took hold a little over a year ago. If the money doesn't want to be in the market for some reason, they're going to get out. So, Tommy, real quick, I mean, you mentioned it earlier, but is it possible that this summer weather rally is over and that, you know, prices, the high prices that, we, that we've already seen for at least the summer months may be behind us? Yeah, it's very possible that the high is in uh, for the year in corn. Now, could beans take another run at it? Absolutely. So I'm old enough to remember years we've grown big corn crops and then damaged the bean crop in August. Uh, it's not as much fun to trade corn. If beans continue to rally all August and September, both based on a production problem and, and great demand, corn will get dragged up, but corn no longer wants to be the leader. So look for uh, hard red spring wheat to be the leader. Look for canola. Look for soybeans. And I think corn would be the, uh, if you were a spreader and you wanted to buy something and sell something, I think corn would be your short leg. That may not help the producer, but if you want to understand what traders do and hedge fund people do, they're using to look corn as a short leg. All right. Well, we still have a lot to talk about on U.S. Farm Report this weekend, so stay with us.
Well, grocery shopping trends show consumers are willing to pay a premium per preference. Here's John Phipps. I've spoken before about the challenging economics facing egg producers. Well, it hasn't gotten any easier. Since the introduction of specialty eggs such as cage-free, organic, brown, free-range, sustainable, and now regenerative, the egg market has defied supply and demand axioms. Now comprising 30% of the egg market and predicted to command 70% in five years, specialty eggs sell for four to six times the price of ordinary eggs. Here's a picture from my local Walmart. As you can guess, this is not an upscale retail outlet in a wealthy, trend-conscious suburb. This is farm country in the Midwest, and if Walmart is doing it, it's not a snobby whim. Since once they're out of the shell, eggs are all pretty much the same, although I can taste and see the difference in same-day fresh eggs. Other than that, even consumers like me who are big egg fans struggle to identify any differences in taste or texture. Perhaps the staggeringly low cost of eggs is actually part of the marketing mystery. At 98 cents per dozen, that's 8 cents per egg. I think they are the greatest protein and nutrition bargain of our diet. But raising the price fourfold still looks cheap, especially when situated next to the meat section. Consumers can indulge in legitimate or questionable characteristics for essentially pennies. And they are. Years ago, egg producers warned that the forced change away from cages would hurt demand, but they clearly misread consumer preferences and the willingness to pay. Cheap food is not the rallying cry when incomes rise to a certain level, or for already cheap products, perhaps. Introducing regenerative, a loosely defined term at best, into the marketing mix will be instructive. They will retail for, brace yourself, eight to nine times regular eggs. If that works, and market share for specialty eggs continues to grow, the producers who took the chance and invested in new practices and facilities will have competitors scrambling. I'm sorry, I couldn't help myself. Thanks, John. Well, when we come back, Machine and Repeat joins us this weekend for Tractor Tales. Hey folks, welcome back to Tractor Tales. This week, join me in North Central Illinois, and we are gonna check out a classic Oliver 1855. Richard Van Hefty, we're at Anwan, Illinois. This one here is uh, 1969. I just picked up the, uh, this last winter. Uh, it's an 1855 turbo diesel. It's been overhauled, so that kind of interests me. And there was 12 pictures in the paper, but uh, once you got there, pictures uh, kind of lie when you take them from a distance. And it was painted with a paintbrush. And Grandma painted it, and she didn't paint it once. She had to paint it twice because she didn't like it. It looked pretty tough when you got up close. Uh, the body, it wasn't dented up and all. So I ended up using an angle iron, angle grinder with uh, a total good uh, new wire wheel on it and scripted everything down to bare metal. It took me uh, from January through May, basically, to get it all done right to suit me. Well, I've used it uh, 
you know, around the farm and all. Uh, nothing heavy. Uh, we got plow days, and I got an Oliver plow for it. And so it's ready to go. It's got 105 horse, and it's pretty healthy. Ethanol groups have dealt a couple heavy blows lately, ones that came from the courts. So what's next when it comes to the future of ethanol? We'll explore it in our Farm Journal report after the break. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Well, as drivers return to the roads, ethanol demand is making a healthy recovery. But two decisions dealt by the courts are creating more challenges for ethanol producers. And that's this week's Farm Journal report. As Americans hit the road, we are experiencing uh, significant recovery. The Energy Information Administration says gasoline demand hit a new record just before the July 4th holiday. Ultimately, we need drivers to return to the road, and you see that with fuel demand, you see that with ethanol demand. That's a, a big part of it. But as gasoline demand makes history, it really was unexpected. Both decisions were unexpected. Two court decisions put ethanol's optimism on a detour last month. Unfortunately, in both of these cases, the courts um, came down with opinions that we wholeheartedly disagree with. We're not going to let these court decisions deter us from our long-term uh, vision of expanding uh, the ethanol marketplace. Uh, and, and the battle is far from over. The two court rulings released exactly one week apart, and the first from the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court overturned a lower court ruling, a Tenth Circuit court ruling, uh, that had thrown out some small refinery exemptions. Uh, that were issued by the Trump administration. The ruling hinged on a single word, extension. We still fail to understand how six judges could side with the refineries and, and interpret the word extension in the way they did. Um, it just seems crazy to us to think that a refiner can seek an extension of something that doesn't exist. Despite the Supreme Court's decision, SCORE doesn't think it will open the door for more small refinery exemptions. EPA still must hold by the standard that any exemption they grant has to ensure that the severe economic hardship claimed by that refinery is directly tied to the RFS. That is a high bar to clear. But the ruling that came a week later from the D.C. District Court overturned the Trump administration's decision to allow the sale of E15 year-round, a ruling that could have an even bigger impact on ethanol demand. For this summer driving season, because of the way the legal proceedings will move forward, I think, you know, we should be able to protect this summer driving season, but we will need as an industry to find to fix in order to allow drivers to use E15 next summer. That was something our industry had been working on for a decade. We finally got some traction with the Trump administration, got that regulatory fix approved. As renewable fuels groups work to repair a victory that took a decade to achieve, they know there's no easy fix. We're going to have to work that much harder and, and put that much more blood, sweat and tears into expanding the market for E15. RFA says this is the third summer that E15 sales had the green light. Last summer, more than 2100 stations offered E15. A decade ago, that number was zero. We had several more you know, several hundred more stations in the hopper ready to go and had some big retail chains kind of 
you know, in wait and see mode on the sidelines. As biofuels groups fight the recent ruling, they say the ball heads back to the political court. And so that is where we're going to be focused on in terms of engaging the administration, Congress, the agencies. And of course, we will exhaust what kind of appeals process we may have with the courts as well. As the Biden administration's focus on electric vehicles isn't stopping renewable energy from making its case. If you're talking about jobs in rural America, if you are talking about clean energy, we are we are the solution. Now, we still have work to convince some policymakers of that. Ethanol is a solution that Cooper says isn't just available, but they say is a low carbon fuel that's also practical. There seems to be a growing recognition that, oh, there's no way we're going to be able to electrify 270 million cars and vans and pickups and SUVs overnight in this country. That's just not going to happen, and the infrastructure isn't there to support it. Finding support for ethanol while wading through the setbacks dealt by the courts. But we're viewing them as temporary setbacks. These are these are bumps in the road, and, and the ethanol industry is going to pick itself up and, and dust itself off. Well, renewable fuels groups say they expect EPA action on the renewable fuel standards soon. That's as EPA is set to release updated renewable volume requirements, or RVOs. Now, there's talk the Biden administration may actually reduce the required blending levels in that announcement. But biofuel groups say they are working in Washington to convince the administration to not make such a move. All right, up next, is there still a price story in soybeans? Well, Brian Split and Tommy Grasafi rejoin me next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Brian, in our last, last roundtable, you know, Tommy talked about there, there possibly could still be a story when it comes to soybeans. Do you agree with that? I think there could be a story with soybeans. I think there still could be a story with corn, uh, you know, and, and we don't need the weather market to, for there to still be a story in corn. Uh, you look at the USDA estimates uh, of, of export demand, and it's substantially below this year's levels. Uh, the U.S. has already has uh, quite a bit on the books to China. Uh, China right now has about 11 million tons booked, uh, another five from elsewhere. Uh, so I don't think that the 20 million ton number is going to be correct when all is said and done. They don't have to buy right now. But at the end of the day, I still think there's a lot of room for the exports to move higher, especially if prices move down. Uh, now, on the soybean front, absolutely, we've got a lot of weather still in front of us for the soybean market. Crop is going to be made in, in August. Uh, so as we progress a little bit further into July and we're looking at the weather, uh, the, these long range extended models for late July, early August into mid August, we still potentially could have a very strong weather market in soybeans. Yeah, you mentioned North Dakota again, Tommy, you have boots on the ground this week doing a tour. You know, are there a lot of disparities right now when it comes to that North Dakota soybean crop, considering USDA does tell us there's there's quite a few soybean acres up there this year? Well, today, Tyne, we're going to travel around the corner and head down towards Bismarck. We've had all types of weather events up here. The one thing you need to know about North Dakota is that we started the year incredibly dry. And so when you see these timely rains hit, uh, when you, the following weekend you have 100 degrees in wind, the, that water goes away. There's the, the, we just have no subsoil moisture. So we'll see what's out there. Uh, soybeans are a very resilient plant. There are some poor stands. There's poor stands of corn and beans, but what's out there and what's still alive uh, has unbelievable potential, again, with some more timely rain. So if you want to uh, believe that the wheat crop's in horrible shape, I, I would agree it's in horrible shape. Don't bet against corn and beans yet for North Dakota, South Dakota, and some other uh, uh, fringe acre states. That's where the extra acres 
came from. And we're going to need those. Brian's right. Yeah. With the USDA gave us a gift. And over the 4th of July holiday, Mother Mother Nature said, hold my beer. I'm going to give you cool weather and some rain. But there's a lot of this game left. I imagine we're in the fourth or fifth inning here. Real quick, Tommy. I mean, it seems like you were kind of surprised by North Dakota crop conditions. Is that the case? And what surprised you the most? Well, yeah, last uh, Monday, Tuesday, the Tuesday when the markets opened back open, uh, up, spring wheat crop rate was supposed to be 19, they were 16. But I wouldn't be surprised to watch the drought monitor, and I feel like that's a lagging indicator. Watch the drought monitor next few weeks. You might start to see that improve a little bit, and you might start to see crop conditions actually improve in some of your fringe acres with some more timely rains. This cool weather up here has just been really beneficial to let this crop uh, catch up. Well, here we are in July, Brian. We did see some of those timely rains at key pollination time when it comes to, you know, Nebraska, uh, Iowa, Wisconsin, some key states that, that were in need of rain. What should the uh, producer's game plan be considering we now are in July, we are getting rains, yet there's so much of this growing season left to go? I think you have to monitor the sales that you have on. Uh, you have to decide whether you're going to deliver those sales out of the field. Uh, we're watching some of the spreads. There could be some opportunity right now to move some of those sales to March to May. Uh, those spreads are the widest levels that we've seen over the last several months. So that's something to be mindful of. Uh, but I don't think this is a market right now in, in the ending stocks and, and the stocks to use numbers that we're dealing with. And this is for both corn and soybeans. I don't think the end of the, the weather market is the end of the bull market. Brian, thank you so much, Tommy. Thanks for taking a break from your Boots on the Ground tour this week to give us an update. We'll stay with us because we have much more on U.S. Farm Report yet to come. Grit with Grace is brought to you by Zoetis. Your dedication runs deep and it fuels everything Zoetis does. To protect and support cattle and those who care for them, we are Born of the Bond. Learn more at bornofthebond.com. Well, life can change in an instant, especially when natural disaster strikes. What started as an ordinary evening of milking for one dairy family turned into a nightmare. This weekend, we share a story of a family who continues to be stronger than the storm, putting grit with grace on full display. It's a day Rob and Lisa Leach will never forget. May 28th, 6.43 p.m. 6.43. That's when it hit us. That's the moment time stood still as the leech's entire farm was wiped out by an EF4 tornado. It was noisy, but it was just like nonstop wind. It was just the most incredible wind you ever can imagine. The twister that hit this Linwood, Kansas farm was a monster at a mile wide, carrying 170 mile per hour winds. We've got a lot of outbuildings. You know, we have shop, freestall barn, camp barn, holding pens, grain bins, garages, silos, it's all gone. Farm Journal captured the aftermath just days after the tornado tore through. Metal and trees, the milking parlor and barns flattened. When we came up the hill, you know, we, we expected the worst and, and we immediately found, well, we had cattle meeting us. We had cattle in our yard, you know, cattle walking all over the place, dead cows. The wind so powerful, some cows were carried more than a half mile away. The one that was the farthest away, we didn't find for 24 hours and she was the most valuable cow on the farm. Where was she? Um, she was down a ditch and couldn't get up. The leech's daughter, Taylor, was still in disbelief even days later. Crash everywhere, nails everywhere, wires everywhere. 
I don't know if we ever, I mean, if we ever have cattle here again, how we're gonna be able to clean up all of the wire and nails out in the pasture. The raw reaction was fresh as the leeches had scrambled to get the surviving cows to help. We could only get 20 hit out the first night. Those are the ones that were hurt the worst. The next morning, Rob says what was left of their 125 head herd were also hauled out. We have so we many have friends. I mean, they're very good friends, very good friends um, that took them roughly 14, 15 farms at one time. A local farm rescued the ones wounded the most. Four vets that worked all night long on cows that were cut up and they never charged us. We never got any bills for any medical work. And they said, well, we'll have to, we'll just have to charge you for drugs. And then some drug company donated drugs, so we didn't have to pay for that. Oh so we were very fortunate. And two years later. But we brought home about 60 or so. Mm -hmm. So we've got at least that many still farmed out. Rebuilding is still taking place, but major headway happened thanks to countless volunteers. There were literally hundreds of people, volunteers that came. Um, probably for, I would say we averaged 100 people a day for over three weeks. An army of volunteers who helped pick up the pieces left. We had several massive cleanups that summer that we cleared uh, as much debris out of the fields as we could. Um, and just walked bulldozers. I think we walked about two, two or 300 acres. Um, just shoulder to shoulder walking the fields. The shredded structures and debris once scattered across this farm were slowly cleaned up. We sold 350,000 pounds of scrap metal in the, in, last, in the summer of 20. As the effort to mend the damage lasted for more than a year. We drained seven ponds because they were just completely filled with steel, barn, tin, lumber. But from the rubble, rose new life and a new look. We started with a commodity barn that really, it was kind of the catch-all. One structure replaced here and another foundation poured there in an effort to replace 11 barns battered by the storm. COVID didn't help our cause at all. So, you know, after COVID, it was kind of a strange phenomenon. People were building stuff all over the place. The price of materials went through the roof. You couldn't get a crew to do anything. Much of this work was done with their own hands, even putting up this barn. 17 of us built it in one day on December 21st. The final piece in a two-year orchestrated effort to finally start milking again. We've been approved by the co-op. Um, we've got it's a trucker lined up that's going to haul the milk for us. And we, we've got six cows that we're milking right now. The same path from the house to the barn before the tornado is one the leeches still travel every day. You know, this is our passion. This is what we do for fun. This is all we've ever done for fun. We like to, we like to show cows. That's kind of our thing. As the leeches say, calling it quits. I wasn't ready to quit. <laughs> never crossed their minds. And honestly, we had some of the best cows we had ever had. Yeah. I, if I knew, it wasn't for I knew we had some really good cows. And that's probably the only reason we came back. And a comeback it was. The same year the tornado hit, the leech's youngest daughter, Sophie, took home grand champion at the Kansas State Fair with their Holstein named Lynn Crest Bradnick Tess, a cow that still bared the scar after surviving the tornado that left a gash in her neck. The family also won the Jersey Jug at Louisville with their Jersey Juju that year, another survivor, and one shown by the woman who rescued Juju and 20 other cows the night the tornado hit. We've had 
you know, some good days in the show ring since the tornado. You know? Some really phenomenal. Yes. So we've, we're very lucky. Very lucky. As the leeches cherish what they've accomplished in two short years, they say their family farm was restored for their three girls. They love it too. We're doing it for them. You know, they, this is this is their passion too. A family that continues to defeat any doubts while beating the odds. Every now and then, you really need to go back and look at the pictures just to remind yeah. yourself how far you've come. How so. many? And yeah. how many people have helped you get there. Yeah, so. it took us a lifetime to build what we had. So to get back to here within two years. As even two years later, the leeches continue to prove they're truly stronger than the storm. Rob recently retired from the fire department due to the tornado. It actually happened a year after he planned. But the leeches say they continue to dairy even after the tornado because that's always what they dreamed. Up next, John Phipps. Where's all the Chinese manure going? Roundtables, we talked about China's shift to feed high-quality protein to their hog herd, but it's how they are raising the hogs that also changed. Here's John Phipps. Several helpful viewers sent links to information about how the Chinese manage the manure from those multi-story hog facilities they are building. So do David Marshall and Eric Owens. Please send me your addresses. I read through all those sources from the academic studies to outside reporting and did not find any indication they have developed a magical system to handle the vast quantities of hog manure that come along with the news-making hog hotels. They have used two tactics that would not be practical in many other countries. First, they're depopulating their hog farmers. Any farm below about 500 head could simply receive a bad newsletter to shut down. Most of the termination seemed to be near the rapidly growing cities. Compensation has been promised, but neither the rate nor the speed are satisfactory for the farmers. That does sound familiar. My guess is Chinese officials are concentrating on improving manure processing at very large farms. And the manure problem is a great cover to consolidate hogs onto those much larger facilities. Currently, about 30% of their hog production is from such small farms. The second tactic is to build new farms away from people and rivers. In fact, they are moving production to forests and grasslands of the northeast and southwest. That would be kind of like moving North Carolina's massive hog industry to Maine or southern Utah. However, hog producers are understandably reluctant to move to the boonies. Logistics for feed and animals will be challenging also. In addition, timber or light soils certainly have not proven to be the answer to phosphate overloading or nitrogen leaching. While there are ingenious plans for digesters and composters in China, not many have been put into action. Rebuilding the world's largest pork production model will take years, even decades. Perhaps their best solution is to simply outsource the whole problem. In essence, they are kind of doing that with the United States, buying pork rather than feed to meet growing demand. Just like we outsourced our pollution problems from chemical, steel, and other industrial processes by buying finished Chinese products, the Chinese government can easily subsidize pork purchases if needed. 
They may also begin moving their hog production, producers, and processing to other countries in Asia and Africa. Okay, in short, I still have no idea how that hog hotel on the mountain gets rid of its waste products. But judging from the meager evidence on Chinese water pollution, the current answer seems to be to simply ignore the problem. Thanks, John. And you can email him your thoughts at mailbag at usfarmreport.com. Well, up next, it's a picture machinery Pete says won the internet this week, and we'll share it with you next. Well, when it's time to hit the fields, the farmers are often in the field more than their home. But for one little girl, the moment she did finally get to see her dad, she cherished. Machinery Pete posted this picture on social media this week, which was shared by Seidenstricker Novi Partners, a John Deere dealership. The photo was snapped by Nikki Browser. That's her husband, Ryan, and their daughter. Nikki says the moment was even sweeter in person. I bet it was. That's all the time we have this weekend. Thank you so much for watching. Be sure to join us next weekend as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.